Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. My name's Brad. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is a delight to be with you. Let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7 is our text this morning. We've been working our way through this letter in the New Testament called Hebrews, and we find ourselves at the beginning of one of the most fascinating and deepest and beautiful theological arguments in all of the letter of Hebrews. It's the writer of Hebrews making the argument that Jesus is a better priest than the Old Testament priests, that the Old Testament priests served their function, but that Jesus is what they were pointing to. He is the better and true and abiding and continuing and eternal priest that all people need. So I'm going to read the text, and then I'm going to try and explain it and apply it. If you're visiting with us for the first time today, at the beginning it might be a little confusing because we're right in the middle of this working just verse by verse through this letter, but, but I hope that you will catch up. I'll do my best to explain the context and the background so that even if you're just hearing for the first time anything about the book of Hebrews, it might make sense to you. Let me read the text and, and then pray. The writer of Hebrews says this, starting in verse 1 through verse 10. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him... Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever." See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, speaking of Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. All right, what in the world is this passage all about? Well, that's my burden to hopefully explain to you and yours to listen. So here's, my, here's the outline of my message today. Part number one is explanation. Part number two is application. Explanation, application. Let me pray and ask the Lord to help us with this text. The Lord, uh, this is beautiful logic. Let us not be uh, 
let us not be flighty Christians who shy away from passages like this that are written for our good. We're just saying that we need thee every hour, and part of the way that we give ourselves to you, that you, that you show yourself to us, is through your word, and this is part of your holy inspired word for your people. Lord, help us to see Jesus, to as a result of our time in these 10 verses, to be able to follow him better. And for our friends that are here today that don't know the Lord, would you open their eyes so that they can trust in Christ for the first time and be saved? And I pray that you'd help me explain this to these people that I love. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I have a friend that preached a message on this passage, and he titled his sermon, Who the Heck is Melchizedek? (laughs) Melchizedek is a mysterious figure in the Bible, but strangely, he figures quite prominently in the New Testament, especially in the argument of the letter of Hebrews. You remember that the background of Hebrews is it's written to first century Jewish Christians in Rome who are enduring persecution as a result of the Roman Empire starting to persecute uh, Christians for their faith in Jesus, and the temptation for these first century Jews that had trusted in Christ, they had received Messiah, was that they were tempted to go back to the more socially acceptable Old Covenant. They were tempted to go back to Judaism because that was acceptable in the Roman Empire. And the writer of Hebrews, who's anonymous to us, has written this letter, it's really a pastor, it's really a sermon, 13 chapters, it's one long sermon, praise God for long sermons. It was a joke, by the way, lighten up. Uh, it was one long sermon that is meant to exhort God's people to encourage them not to draw back, to hold fast to Jesus, to not give up, and to not go back to the old covenant. And one of the things that the, in fact, the primary thing that the writer of Hebrews does is he takes significant aspects of the Old Covenant or the Old Testament or life as a Jew in the Old Covenant, and he compares Jesus to them, whether it's Moses or David or the Promised Land or the sacrifices or the covenant. Or here in chapter 7, the priesthood, he takes a comparison of Jesus to these Old Testament realities, these Old Testament pillars truths, the priesthood, and he's showing them, this is the logic of the Bible, he's showing this first century Jewish mind how Jesus is better than these things, so don't go back to what is now obsolete, press on to what is true and better. And what is going on here in chapter 7 is he's taking up the priesthood. So I want to explain this text by giving you three, I want to put up on the screen for you the logic really of all of chapter 7, but especially the first 10 verses and why Melchizedek figures so prominently in this. And I'll explain who Melchizedek is in just a moment. So here's, here's three statements that, that trace for us the logic of these 10 verses and really all chapter 7. Melchizedek, who is this mysterious figure in Genesis that we'll read about in just a moment, he was a priest. He shows up out of nowhere. And he's a priest, notably, even before the priesthood was instituted by Moses in the law in Exodus. Well, that's kind of mysterious. Melchizedek is this priest who shows up, and here's point number one, our logical statement number one, is that Melchizedek's priesthood is greater than the Levitical priesthood 
that comes later. So Melchizedek, who shows up in Genesis 14, is greater than the priesthood that comes about as a result of the law, not until Exodus. So Melchizedek is greater than the Levitical priesthood. Secondly, the second line of argumentation is that Melchizedek's priesthood, whatever it is, whatever it is in its mystery, it resembles Jesus' priesthood. So Melchizedek, in his mysterious appearance early on in the Bible, is a kind of shadow, a kind of picture, a type that is pointing to, he's resembling, he's a shadow of Jesus who is to come. So Melchizedek's priesthood resembles Jesus' priesthood. And then what follows, and this is the balance of Hebrews chapter 7, therefore Jesus' priesthood is greater than, it's better than the Levitical priesthood. So the obvious implication is, for the first century Jewish listener, don't go back to the thing that has now been improved upon by Jesus' priesthood. So let's just kind of take those three things. My explanation will just be sort of unpacking each of those three statements, those logical statements, which is the logic of Hebrews chapter 7. First, Melchizedek's priesthood is greater than the Levitical priesthood. Now, before we understand, you might be, oh my gosh, but okay, I'm tracking with you, but what is the priesthood? What's going on here? In order to really get the force of this argument, we have to put ourselves, we have to imagine ourselves as, as if we were a first century Hebrew that, that lived our lives completely dependent on the Old Covenant. And a high point of this Old Covenant is the priesthood. Remember a couple weeks ago on Labor Day weekend, we just took a little break from our Hebrew series and, and we looked at Jesus, our high priest from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, that says there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. And that word mediator really encapsulates the heart of what a priest is, that, that this first century Jewish person would have grown up knowing instinctively that in order to approach a holy God, they needed a go-between. You needed a mediator. And so it was just part of who you are to grow up knowing that you needed this. Maybe part of growing up in the South is that, you know, you take something that's healthy like a vegetable and you make it unhealthy by frying it, battering it and frying it. You just, you just sort of instinctively know that as a Southerner, right? Did I offend anybody? I don't know. I'm still, I got a couple groans and gasps there. That's just something we know to do. Ruin vegetables. Well, in a similar way, a first century Jew would just know instinctively that you need a priest. Okay? And where do the priests come from? Well, God, all through Genesis, we see the dealing of God forming a nation through Abraham and then bringing it to fruition through the promised child Isaac, and then through his son Jacob, who at the end of Genesis, there is this great patriarch who eventually wrestles with God. He's renamed Israel, and Jacob has, this is important for you to understand, Jacob has 12 sons. This is towards the end of Genesis. And Jacob's 12 sons become what we, maybe you've heard this phrase before, it's a common phrase sort of in in Christianity and Judaism, the 12 tribes of Israel. And these 12 tribes of Israel come from these 12 sons of Jacob, or 12 sons of Israel. Jacob and Israel are the same person. He's renamed Israel by God towards the end of Genesis. And these 12 tribes, then these 12 sons, and the tribes that come from them, 
each have their specific duties in the people of God to, to make Israel all that God had called them to be as a light amongst the nations and to fulfill his purpose for them. And there's this one tribe of the 12 tribes of Israel called the Levites from Levi, one of Jacob's 12 sons, Levi, and they are the Levites. And so after Israel finds itself in captivity in Egypt and then are rescued by Moses, the deliverer from Egyptian captivity, cross over the Red Sea, they're in the Sinai, they're at Mount Sinai, getting ready to, to wander around in the desert before they enter the promised land. Moses and his brother Aaron, who are two descendants of the, the tribe of Levi, Moses receives the law of God on the mountain, which then gives instructions about the institution and the responsibilities of this priesthood. And so when you hear the phrase Levitical priesthood, it's because the priesthood, the priests of Israel, were from the tribe of Levi, descended from the son of Jacob, one of the twelve, Levi. And so that's where we get this phrase, the Levitical priesthood. And sometimes you hear also the phrase, the Aaronic priesthood, Aaron. He's one of the Levites, so Aaronic and Levitical, it's really saying the same thing. It's just descendants of the same tribe, the same son of Jacob. And they are the ones that are to administer the sacrifices. They are the mediators. The animal sacrifices, all of this that we see throughout the wanderings in the desert and all throughout the, 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 the tabernacle in the desert and the temple later on built, the Levitical priesthood. But the point here in, our, in, in where we're at now is that Melchizedek, Melchizedek, whoever he is, he is by first translation of his name, king of Salem, that is, king of peace. And then it goes on, the logic, the clear logic of the rest of the passage is verses 4 through 10, where it's basically saying, you need to follow this logic. It's saying, okay, there's this mysterious priest who is a priest who shows up before the priesthood is actually instituted hundreds of years later in Exodus through Moses and Aaron. Okay, There's this Melchizedek guy who shows up, then subordinates itself to this mysterious priest Melchizedek and so the inferior, Abraham and everything from him, the Levitical priesthood, is actually bowing down and offering tithes to this mysterious figure, Melchizedek, who because he receives tithes from Abraham, Okay, great. This is wonderful. I woke up this morning, and this, this is, boy, boy, this is a text that will preach, right? Well, we're going somewhere. Let's follow the beautiful logic of the Bible, and let's trust the sufficiency of the, of the inspiration of Scripture, because he's making a point, okay? And so that's, that's the point. That's the, that's the logic, is that what comes from Abraham, the Levites, is inferior to the 
priesthood of Melchizedek, who he offers tithes to. Well, let's read when uh, Abraham does that in Genesis chapter 14. I just want you to see this text. Let's actually read the Bible. Genesis 14, starting in verse 17. So Abraham has rescued, just a little background of Genesis 14. Abraham has rescued his nephew Lot from these kings who kidnapped him. He defeats them, he slaughters them, he gets Lot back, and he's coming back. And in verse 17, we pick up, after his return from the defeat of Kedar Lamor and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. But before that could happen, verse 18, verse 18, 19, and 20 are the only, this is the only biographical information we have on this mysterious Melchizedek. Verse 18, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. This is the first time in the Bible that the word or the whole idea of priest is, is mentioned. Get this, you have to get this. Even before the priesthood is instituted, all the way later in, in Exodus at Mount Sinai with Moses and Aaron, right? So he is a priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram. By God, most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God, most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And that's it. That's all we know about Melchizedek. He is this, again, mysterious figure who shows up out of nowhere, who is strangely, and this will become important in just a moment, who's called a king and a priest, He's the first time we've ever heard the word priest in the Bible, and a king, and Abraham recognizes who he is, and he offers him a tenth. And so here we are. Let's just kind of not get ahead of ourselves. The logic at this point is, is that Melchizedek's priesthood is greater than the Levitical priesthood, okay? Logical statement number two that the author makes then is that Melchizedek's priesthood resembles Jesus' priesthood. Look at our text again in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 3. It says, he is, speaking of this, and this is sort of commentary of the writer of Hebrews on the lack of information that we have about Melchizedek in Genesis 14. Not much is said about him. He shows up out of nowhere, and basically Abraham gives him, uh, gives him a tithe. And it says in verse 3, this is now the writer of Hebrews, now filling in some gaps, giving some commentary on who Melchizedek is. And he says, He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, what's going on there? The writer of Hebrews is not saying literally that Melchizedek is some sort of eternal person that popped up out of nowhere and wasn't physically born like the rest of us are. He's not saying that he didn't have a true mom or dad in the flesh and that he had no beginning or end of life. He is saying he's actually using the lack of information about Melchizedek in Genesis 14 and he's drawing out a spiritual parallel of it and he's saying that the Holy Spirit intentionally caused Moses 
to say very little about Melchizedek. In fact, let me pause. Let me hit the pause button in just a second. One of the notable things about Genesis is that every time somebody's mentioned in Genesis, you get their genealogy. Any significant figure in Genesis, you get their genealogy so that the Jews could trace, so they know who this person is and what, all the, their patronage. They, they know it. But Melchizedek, strangely, has no genealogy mentioned. Not because he didn't literally have a mom or dad, or because he wasn't truly born in the flesh and actually died, but because the Holy Spirit intentionally caused Moses, when he was retroactively writing Genesis, to not include those details, so that the writer of Hebrews, centuries later, could use Melchizedek as a kind of shadow and example and compare him to Jesus. Because who is Jesus? Jesus has no beginning and no end. And in a sense, Jesus has no genealogy either in, in the way that you and I do. Of course, we know that he is born of a Virgin Mary, and he had this father, Joseph, who was not his true biological father because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. But in a sense, Jesus doesn't have a, a kind of earthly genealogy like we do, tainted by sin. And so by causing Moses to not give those details, the writer of Hebrews then uses it as a spiritual point. He applies, he, he uses it as a shadow. He's saying that the Holy Spirit orchestrated all of this to use this man as a picture, a shadow, an Old Testament type that was meant to cause God's people to look up and expect Something that resembled this priest who shows up out of nowhere, and eventually that becomes Jesus. And here's what's also interesting, is that Jesus, as an ethnic Jew, Jesus as the true and better priest, Jesus didn't come from the line of Levites. Jesus' genealogy, in a human sense, wasn't from the tribe of Levi, the priestly tribe. He was from the tribe of Judah. He's a lion of the tribe of Judah. And so for a first century Jew, he's thinking, well, this Jesus, think about it. Put yourself in the, in the mind and the mentality of a first century Jew who's thinking about the priest has got to come from the Levites, but here's this Jesus who Paul and all the other apostles are telling me is the true and better priest and the writer. Well, he can't be a priest. He's not from the Levites. And the point that the author of Hebrews is making is, no, 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 no. He's like this. Remember this strange figure, Melchizedek, who had, he wasn't even part of the Levites. He was before the Levites were being instituted. No beginning, no end. And he is a kind of Old Testament shadow pointing to Jesus. And so Melchizedek's priesthood resembles Jesus' priesthood. Therefore, Jesus' priesthood is greater. This is the conclusion. Therefore, Jesus' priesthood is greater than the Levitical priesthood. That's the conclusion of the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 7. And you're like, okay, Brad, thank you for explaining that to me. I hope you understand that. Um, wonderful. How does this help me live better for Christ this week? Well, now we're at point number two, application. How should we live in light of that? Well, friends, I think this tells us, I think there's two points here, and then we'll respond to the Lord in song, is that we should read Scripture with Christ as the center. Read Scripture with Christ as the center. 
I think that's why Melchizedek shows up out of nowhere in Genesis chapter 14, seemingly. Because he's meant to show us that the whole Bible is actually pointing to Jesus. The Old Testament is not just this strange uh, group of stories where God seems to be different. And now in the New Testament, he seems to be a little bit more gracious. No, it's been grace from one covenant to another. And the Lord is showing. He's giving shadows to his people. In fact, Jesus says this in Luke chapter 24. After his resurrection, he is now resurrected and he appears to these two uh, disciples on their way to uh, Emmaus, uh, the two disciples, and there's this famous verse at the end of Luke chapter 24. Jesus comes up to them post-resurrection. They didn't understand who he was. He was still veiled from them, and he asks them what's going on, and they just kind of say, well, basically, we were following Jesus, and he was crucified, and now we're just kind of going back home. And so they didn't understand. They were Jewish first century Christians who didn't understand all the implications of the old covenant, what it was pointing to. They would have known who Melchizedek was. They would have known that there was a true and better suffering servant coming like Isaiah was pointing. They should have known all these things. And Jesus says to them in verse 25, and he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then verse 27, and beginning with Moses... That's the first five books of the Old Testament. And all the prophets, he, meaning Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures, and the scriptures at that point only consisted of the Old Testament, all the things concerning himself. And so Jesus, I'm sure, in this amazing sermon that he preached to these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, certainly said, Melchizedek, remember him who shows up? He was pointing to me, a priest who lives forever. You need a better priest, and I am that priest. So here's, here's, here's what we should take from this. When we read something strange and seemingly unfamiliar to our 21st century cultural minds, what are we to make of Melchizedek? Why is he important? Because he was a kind of exhortation, in a sense maybe even a kind of scold to a first century Jew that you should have got this. You should have seen Melchizedek in the scriptures. You should have known that he was the one that is pointing to Jesus. In fact, Psalm 110, let me just read Psalm 110, just a couple verses from it. Psalm 110, this is is an incredible uh, short psalm, and it's, it's about the picture of Melchizedek. And here's what I want you to realize about Psalm 110. Psalm 110, who's this, which is this short, seemingly mysterious psalm in the Old Testament, is the most quoted passage from the Old Testament in all of the New Testament. So there are dozens of references to whatever's going on in Psalm 10 all throughout the New Testament. So let me read Psalm 110 for you, which is ultimately about the fact that we need a king who's also a priest, to go before us to mediate God's holiness and justice and, 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 and wrath for our sin. And we not only need a priest before God, but we need a king who will smash all of our enemies. And Psalm 110 is about that. And Psalm 110 references this Melchizedek. So Psalm 110, the most quoted passage in all of the New Testament, of any Old Testament passage, David says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. 
you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So this is actually a psalm about Jesus who is coming. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He shall shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Boy, isn't that a mystifying psalm in some sense if you were an Old Testament Jew. Who is this one who's going to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek, but who will also be this king who will shatter the enemies of the Lord? And it's Jesus. It's Jesus. And so we now then have the benefit to receive this passage and read chapter 7 in light of the gospel, reading the, the whole Bible with Christ. As the center. So everything in the Old Testament isn't merely a story about rules or righteousness or morality, but it's ultimately a story that is meant to point us to our need for Jesus. The Bible is not primarily about what we must do, but about what God has done for us. Now, a caution, a caution. As much as I want to trumpet and champion this idea of reading the Bible, having a kind of scent in your spiritual nostrils to see Jesus in, in every nook and cranny of the, of the Bible, to, to see Jesus as the center of all of God's revelation from Genesis to Revelation, it, it, there's a caution that there can be a kind of danger of just seeing how the Bible, even some obscure Old Testament passage, points to Jesus and just sort of stopping there. Right? And saying, okay, oh, well, yes, Jesus is the one who will satisfy God's wrath. Jesus is the true priest who will satisfy God. Jesus is the true king who will smash God's enemy. Therefore, all I need to do is trust in Jesus, and that's all of the Christian life. And friends, that's a kind of halfway application. Although the Bible is primarily about what Jesus has done, not about what we must do, it is also about what we must do in light of what Jesus has done. So we must read the scripture with Christ as the center, as the priest who satisfies, who does what we cannot do, but also as Jesus as the king who commands his people to obey him and give their lives to him in faithfulness. There's a kind of ditch here, I say this often, is that the gospel is kind of like a middle road. And on one side, it's very easy to sort of fall off into legalism and moralism. And I think that's what the gospel clearly corrects. It says, no, no, you're not made right by just you doing better, but by Jesus doing it for you on the cross. We in our own righteousness can never appease God. All of us are guilty before him. And only Jesus' work, only Jesus being our priest, only Jesus being the true and better sacrifice. Only Jesus on the cross, not only as the priest, but as the sacrifice, as the lamb, the spotless one who lays down his life on the cross to bear God's wrath. wrath. Only he can make us right. And so we can't lean on our righteousness. We can't lean on our works. That's legalism. Yes, Jesus is the sinner. Yes and amen. That's one ditch we can fall into, which is legalism. But the other ditch on the other side of the road, which we're prone to as well, is that that doesn't mean that the commands of Scripture are not also valid to us for us after we've trusted in Jesus. 
So one ditch is legalism. The other is, and here's a big word for you, antinomianism or against God's command or this view that all I need is grace and now there's no obligation of obedience. And the gospel corrects both. It says, no, Jesus is both. He's the center of scripture as both the priest that satisfies God that we cannot do, but also is the king who now makes us alive and commands us and enables us to obey him. So Jesus is the center of scripture. And secondly, and we end on this, how should we live in light of this? How does this apply to us? Because none of, I don't think any of us are battling with, um, you know, you've had a hard day or maybe you've, you're in a situation at work where you're being persecuted for your faith. I don't think that any of you, your first instinct is, you know what? Forget all this gospel-centered preaching stuff. I think to alleviate the stress I'm feeling as a Christian in 21st century America, is I'm going to revert back to Judaism and practice animal sacrifice so I need a, a priest. Have any of you been tempted to do that? No, no, no. I don't think so. So what are we to make of this? This is not our temptation to lean on some Old Testament priest. But the second point is that we should recognize our own specific insufficient priests. Our insufficient obsolete priests may not be the priests of the temple sacrifice of the old covenant but they are it's anything basically that we run to in times of stress or difficulty or trial or trouble to mediate our pain to mediate our insecurity to mediate ourselves to to escape from the pressures or the pain of life the difficulties of life rather than God himself. Now, what can these things be? Well, it's always a danger offering specific application because, you know, you mention a few things and you think, oh, well, I, my stuff didn't get mentioned in that list, so thank God I'm off the hook on this sermon, right? Now, don't, don't do that. Let the Holy Spirit fill in your blanks. I pray that he would go far beyond anything that a man can say in a sermon, and he would make application to our heart. But we think of these huge categories, money, sex, power, drugs, alcohol. These are things that we've seen people historically run to, to, to medicate themselves. And what are those things? We think of them as vices or sins. Clearly they are. But really, they're, they're a kind of way of appeasing. They're a way of numbing the pain. They're a way of escaping. It's in a sense, in our folly, when we give ourselves over to those things, we're actually treating those things like false priests. Will this thing satisfy me? Will this thing take away the pain? And we have these huge categories. Like I said, money, sex, power, drugs, alcohol, that we abuse or wreck our lives with. But can even be more subtle things? You know, I've noticed, um, uh, you know, I, I, I've... I talk a lot about just eating, snacking late at night. I, I joke about a, a bowl of Cheetos at 11.30 at night as I'm anxious. Uh, but what about like online shopping? You know, um, retail therapy is a real thing. You know what I'm talking about? And one of the, it's a blessing and a curse, man. You can just, you're anxious. There's some subconscious insecurity in your soul. And the insufficient priest of Amazon 
Amazon is like a siren in the water just calling your name. Click here. Prime, next day delivery. In fact, in strange places like California, they even have like these drones who will drop a package on your doorstep. <laughs> what in the world? What, what type of planet are we living in? And friends, I mean, on some sense, praise God for Amazon shipping. In fact, I ordered something. It didn't get delivered Friday, and now it sent me a little message saying it's delayed. It better be here by this afternoon on a Sunday. <laughs> but do you understand? Do you understand what might be going on in our hearts there is the is we're treating these things like it's in this moment rather than running to God and facing the pain of the situation I'm in, facing my residue, facing the consequences of my actions, facing the sin that I'm still dealing with. It's so easy in this world to just run from that and medicate ourselves by some little thing like silly like that. And friends, we build those things up over and over and over again, and it becomes like a pathway through the woods. It becomes like a, a well-worn path that your heart just subconsciously and instinctively runs to in that moment of stress. And over the course of time, that little thing that you run to, which in and of itself may not be sinful, can build itself into an insufficient Levitical priesthood in your heart that now you're finding comfort in rather than God. And good things can subtly become false, insufficient priests. Parents obsessing over their children's achievements. Pastors obsessing over the success of their ministry or the number of people on Sunday morning. All of us in some sort of vocation, obsessing over the next promotion or raise, obsessing over our spouse's validation of us or marriage itself. And see, there's a perfect example. Isn't it a wonderful thing to be validated by your spouse? Isn't it? That's a wonderful thing. It should be a natural overflow of life together. But see how subtly that can become a kind of insufficient priest when it takes the place of what only Jesus can do for our hearts. Here's another one. Final, I'll stop here because it's getting uncomfortable. The subtle pride. The subtle, listen to me, hear me generously. The subtle pride of good theology, the insufficiency of good theology. Oh, I... I, I know this is, I am of this theological camp, therefore I'm okay, and therefore I'm all right. And even the rightness of our theology, if it's not pressed into the depth of our heart, if the theology doesn't move past just the mere study or knowledge of God into the experience of God's grace, it can become a kind of insufficient priest that we hide behind. And so, yeah, we may not be prone to run to a temple sacrifice mediated by a guy in priestly regalia. But we are all prone to our own insufficient priests. We know something is wrong, and we look for something to medicate and mediate our anxiety and pain and insecurity. But what we really need is something lasting. We need something that lives 
forever. We need the true priest king, Jesus, who Melchizedek points to. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you, O Lord. So what are we to make of this? What are we to go away as we study Melchizedek thinking? Oh, friends, let's remember the centrality of Jesus. And let's dig into our hearts. Let's do the work of self-examination and repentance, which is a daily habit for a Christian. And let's recognize our insufficient priests. And let's even lay the insufficient priests down at the altar and say, God, take this away from me and renew me afresh and let me see Jesus, the priest king who died for me, who rose again, who now is my king, who commands me to trust in him, to obey him, and not all of these other good and insufficient things. Lord, do that for us. Let me pray. Lord, help us rightly apply this text. Lord, if we're honest, I think all of our lives are full of little insufficient priests that are kind of like a game of whack-a-mole at the county fair. You knock one down back into the hole and it seems like another one pops up. That's just part of sanctification, Lord. That's life this side of, of glory. And yet you're with us in that. You don't, you don't cast us off. You exhort us. You renew us. You give us your Holy Spirit that dwells in us. You give us your word. You give us community. You give us people that can speak into our lives. You give sermons, Bible studies, words in the hallway to, to help give us gospel clarity that we, we need Jesus afresh this week. That he alone is the true priest that lives forever. That he alone can satisfy our insecurities, our anxiety, our pain. Lord, as we sing, if there are areas that have become clear to us that we need to turn from, repent of, if we've built some false priesthoods in our life, even though we, we're born again, we're Christians, we know that Jesus is the king, but we just sort of let these things creep in. Lord, let us do the, the sanctification, gardening work of rooting out these weeds afresh and return to you in repentance. And for my friends that are here for the first time, maybe hearing the gospel for the first time explained in a way that's made sense to them, Lord, would you, would you help them realize that they need Jesus? They need somebody to stand before a holy God for them. And God has done that through his son, Jesus, who is God in the flesh and has borne your wrath on the cross and has extinguished it. He's satisfied it. He's... He's taking care of it. And he rose again in victory over the consequences of our law-breaking in victorious resurrection. And now as the priest at your right hand, as the king seated forever, commands us all to turn and trust in him. And so, Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who sees that for the first time, by your grace, you would give them a heart to believe and turn from trusting in all of their other vain glories and trust in Jesus for the first time today. Lord, do that, I pray. And make them new. Save them. 
Lord, as we sing this song, may we rejoice in the goodness of the gospel and the sufficiency of Jesus. In his name I pray, amen.